Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Um, thank you all for attending. Thanks to those of you watching on the Internet at uh, Cato.org. Uh, also, a special thanks to our conference department. Um, normally, uh, our conference department is assisted by our intern class, but since we're in between intern classes, they're working extra hard today. So thanks to them uh, for all that they do. Um, I've done a lot of events here at Cato over the last uh, seven and a half years in this capacity, but it's a, it's a special pleasure to welcome Richard Immerman today. I first met Professor Immerman in the uh, autumn of 1994 when I began graduate study at Temple University. And over the years, he's been my teacher, uh, my dissertation advisor. Uh, he's mentored me in my career, and he's a good friend. And so it's really a, a pleasure to have him here. I hope that I've given uh, Richard back a little bit over the years. Um, I tried to share some thoughts on contemporary foreign policy, and when I happen upon a relevant piece of information, I share it with him. But I know at the end of the day, the debt will never really be repaid. So I'll just say thank you and welcome. Um, in this book, Empire for Liberty, a history of American imperialism from Benjamin Franklin to Paul Wolfowitz, Richard ponders a central question. Did America set out to become an empire? And if so, how has it reconciled its imperialism with the idea of liberty expressed so eloquently in, among other places, the Declaration of Independence? In the book, Richard tells the story of six men who influenced the course of American foreign policy. Benjamin Franklin, John Quincy Adams, William Henry Seward, Henry Cabot Lodge, John Foster Dulles, and Paul Wolfowitz. Richard shows how each individual's influence arose from a keen sensitivity to the concerns of their times, uh, but also how this trajectory of America, uh, American empire, it was relentless, but not necessarily straight. Uh, and these shrewd individuals really tailored their rhetoric over the years uh, to suit their needs and the times. <clears throat> Um, when a historian tells a story, tells history through biography, they have to choose very wisely. Because you want to find historical figures who are both interesting and relevant. Uh, now, five of the six men profiled in this book are unquestionably interesting figures. Uh, and perhaps, you know, we can quibble. Uh, with his decision to choose, for example, Franklin over Washington or Jefferson, or, say, John Quincy Adams versus Henry Clay, something like that. But I don't think we can quibble with the sixth and final figure profiled in this book, Paul Wolfowitz. Richard clearly shows his influence over the past two decades of U.S. foreign policy, and as if on cue, Mr. Wolfowitz obliged Richard by showing that he is still shaping policy, or at least trying to, in yesterday's New York Times. Here we have it, the New York Times, big, big, with a big picture. Uh, we have Mr. Wolfowitz cautioning against a military withdrawal from Iraq and calling instead for an enduring security relationship with the Iraqi government along the lines of our now nearly six decades long alliance with South Korea. Um, so I think on balance that Richard has chosen his figures wisely, and he has told an interesting and important story through the lives of these six men. I'm really looking forward to his talk and to our subsequent discussion. Let me tell you a bit more about him. He is the Edward J. Bethusium Family Distinguished Faculty Fellow 
uh, at Temple University and director of Temple's Center for the Study of Force and Diplomacy. From September 2007 to December 2008, Richard served as Assistant Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Analytic Integrity and Standards and Analytic Ombudsman for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. His research focuses on the history of U.S. foreign relations. He's the author of several books concentrated on the presidential administration of Dwight David Eisenhower, including Waging Peace, which he co-wrote with Robert Bowie, and a diplomatic biography, John Foster Dulles, Piety, Pragmatism, and Power in U.S. Foreign Policy. Over the years, he's demonstrated and he's studied the interaction between decision-making, foreign policy decision-making, the role of intelligence in the formulation of policy, and the application of psychological theory to international behavior. He was awarded the Society of uh, Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations Bernath Book Prize in 1983 for his book, The CIA in Guatemala, and he was awarded the Bernath Lecture Prize in 1990. He was also, he's also served as president of Schaefer in 2007. He's a recipient of a number of awards, including uh, MacArthur Foundation Fellowship in International Peace and Security Studies, and as well as grants uh, from a number of foundations. He holds a PhD from Boston College and a bachelor's degree from Cornell. So please join me in welcoming Richard Immerman. Whenever I follow Chris, which haven't been that often, I have to lower the microphone. <laughs> That's actually not just for Chris. Uh, let me uh, begin by expressing how um, my delight in being here. Um, thanks to Chris for inviting me. Uh, thanks for all of you for attending. Um, I see a number of familiar faces in the audience, uh, many of whom we go back quite a ways. Um, so again, now not only is this remind me how short I am, but how old I am. Uh, so let me uh, make some relatively short remarks about the book, um, my overall argument. Actually, I, I could probably say nothing because Steve, uh, Chris already gave you the argument, but um, I'll, I'll try in any case. Um, for Americans, the word empire, I think we will probably all agree, is unequivocally a word of opprobrium, freighted with lots of negative baggage that smacks of aggression, militarism, avarice, subjugation, um, and those are the nicer of the words. Basically, empire is downright un-American. But for the same Americans, liberty is perhaps the most exalted of our core values, an ideal, an aspiration that's a public good and should be considered the birthright of everyone regardless of nationality. That said, one might argue basically concurrently that because Americans are constantly reminded that liberty, its theoretical universality notwithstanding, is alien to many, indeed most states and societies, in many of our minds, the word liberty constitutes and represents the very essence of what it is to be an American. So we have two words, empire and liberty, that are basically located at the two ends of the spectrum of Americana. Liberty is the good, 
and empire is both the bad and the ugly. Yet, from my perspective, no two words have been more closely related and, in fact, mutually reinforcing. Indeed, the question that motivated my writing this book was whether the juxtaposition between empire and liberty drove American expansion, as Chris mentioned, and if it did, did it do so from the very beginning? Does it continue to do so? And what have been the consequences? What is more at issue is whether this juxtaposition was paradoxical or logical, or at least inherent. What further, I guess, piqued my interest was my decades-long curiosity, actually going back to my Cornell days, over what I call the mystery of the Jeffersonian preposition. Writing to George Rogers Clark in 1780, Thomas Jefferson referred to the Ohio River Valley as potentially both a barrier against the, quote, dangerous extension of British Canada and an addition to the empire of liberty. To me, Jefferson's references, reference in this case to empire of liberty was an acknowledgment of the fundamental character of the noble experiment, even as it reflected a pervasive anxiety over America's security and vulnerability. Yet in 1809, writing in the aftermath of the triumphant purchase of the Louisiana Territory and doubtless not deaf to the, the drumbeat of Warhawks like Henry Clay, Jefferson, in corresponding with his ally and protege, James Madison, wrote Empire for Liberty, transforming the adjective from of to for. Now, I'm not a Jeffersonian scholar, and the revision may have been inadvertent. Apparently, he didn't have his first letter next to him while he was writing this one. Still, I've long suspected that the switch from of to for was significant. It signified Jefferson's transition to a more proactive extender, if not exporter, of liberty, an empire builder as opposed to an empire inheritor. After all, Jefferson used empire for liberty in the context of discussing Canada, which soon thereafter, just a couple years, he would confidently predict the United States would conquer by, quote, a mere matter of marching. What is more, by this time, Jefferson's optimism in the capabilities of Native Americans to embrace liberty and assimilate had dissipated to the point where a phrase like empire of liberty was necessary but not sufficient. Thus, by exploring the question of how empire and liberty fit together in explaining the history of American expansion and ever mindful of the Jeffersonian preposition, I developed the argument that Americans historically conceived or maybe imagined America as an empire for liberty, not just an empire of liberty. In fact, this interdependence was a fundamental dimension of American identity. That's because Americans believe themselves destined to expand inexorably in terms of population, territory, and influence, thereby producing both prosperity and progress. 
this expansion was benevolent, progressive, and at the same time defensive, never hegemonic, let alone imperialistic. The United States had to grow its empire in order to extend the sphere of liberty, even as it prevented the expansion of others, other less virtuous empires. The American empire was the antidote to the evil empire long before anyone had used that term. What made American exceptional, it follows, was not simply that they were unlike other nationalities, but also that in the United States, idealism and self-interest were indistinguishable, if not synonymous. But the evidence is overwhelming, I think, that empire and liberty existed in constant tension with one another. In fact, as attested to by Jefferson's reference to Canada on the one hand and concerns with Native Americans on the other, empire and liberty were, from really the nation's founding, headed on a collision course. Parallel dynamics and phenomena can be seen in Hawaii and the Philippines at the turn of the century, during the interwar years, and, of course, during the Cold War. It was during this latter stage that Americans so vehemently self-identified with an empire for liberty as they engaged in a Manichaean struggle with the empire against liberty. Yet I would suggest that the collision between empire and liberty has in fundamental respects become most undeniable, most challenging, most anguish-ridden, and perhaps most untenable in the contemporary period. That's because both before and after the awakening in Iraq, and regardless of the ultimate ending, denouement, which I think is still very much up in the air, Operation Iraqi Freedom, which incidentally, as some of you probably know, was initially called Operation Iraqi Liberation until someone figured out the acronym and decided that that wouldn't work very well. Um, that was all but divorced from the overthrow of the tyrannical Saddam Hussein and married to Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, rendition, and other things like that. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. I'll come back to that at the end. In no small part, I would argue, Americans could so readily reconcile empire with liberty um, that they can conflate them because the two words themselves are so ambiguous and amorphous. The term empire has been applied so profligately as to undermine its analytic utility. Scholars have provided us with um, a number of good definitions. I'm not going to repeat them now. But I will make the fundamental point that, at least in the American context, the definition of empire has always been dynamic, uh, meaning that that definition has changed over time, much as the US empire has changed over time. For example, up through the Civil War, empire was pretty much a benign, if not anodyne, concept, essentially used interchangeably with state. Only in the latter part of the 19th century did it take on a pejorative connotation. 
framed internationally by the onset of the new imperialism and domestically by the debates between the imperialists and the anti-imperialists. There was really no term imperialism until the 19th century. The other half of the equation, liberty, is if anything more ambiguous or more elusive. We apply liberty to almost anything just because it has a feel-good ring to it. Contrast the Statue of Liberty, for example, which certainly has a substantive meaning, iconic, with the New York Liberty basketball team or the Liberty House department store where I used to go shopping when I was in Hawaii. It was completely meaningless what, what it meant. Further, without saying that liberty is in the eye of the beholder, but I think it is to some extent, it's certainly a contested and contestable concept. During the U.S. Civil War, both sides claimed ownership of the mantle of defender of liberty, and not without some justification, and, and they, they did so. It is as a consequence of the imprecision of both empire and liberty, their opaqueness, that not only was the tension between the two obscured, I think, for much of American history, but also that America's statesmen and leaders could mold their words to both fit the times and serve their goals. It's not that these elites necessarily manipulated their words, that they were disingenuous, although certainly there, there was some of that, but of greater significance, these leaders represented and reflected their respective eras, even as, um, as, as really demanded by the American political system, they exercised leadership and sought to influence both policy and strategy. It is for this reason that I chose to concentrate on individuals or as political scientists would say, the individual level of analysis. It's not that I minimize the role played by broad social culture, culture or international forces, what increasingly historians are attracted to, but I have long held that individuals do make choices, and those choices have consequences. It is because of individual choice that the American empire grew in the way that it did and thus had the consequences that it did. In fact, as, as, as Chris mentioned um, briefly in the introdu introduction, one of the most startling judgments I reached was how nonlinear was the growth of the American empire. There was more of a quilt-like quality, almost random or, or at least incoherent, than a pattern, at least a, a, a clear and coherent um, pattern. In fact, I end up arguing, which I have to say I did not begin thinking that I was going to make this argument, that the American empire was not a product of the search for security, nor the need for markets and materials, 
nor a reflection of some kind of ideological or cultural evangelicalism or racism or the projection of nationalism or greatness or any of the other explanations that basically drives the literature. Rather subsumed within the malleable phrase empire for liberty, it was all of the above, although at different times. I wish it were neater or more parsimonious. Historians like that. We, we like to be able to tell a, a clear story, but it's not, and in retrospect, I think that makes a great deal of sense. After all, if uh, a dynamic, tension-ridden, internally contradictory, and hence much more mediated by individuals' empire is what we're talking about, it's hard to imagine observing consistency over a 250-year arc of time. It's it, it just not going to happen that way. Well, ultimately, I end up, again, as Chris mentioned, sort of profiling a total of six subjects, but um, for the purpose of this presentation and just to, to uh, save us some time for discussion, um, I'm going to focus on only two. Um, and even then, I'm going to deal only with the, the basics. And the two I've singled out are, in my view, the two who experienced the most grief over this whole process, although for very different reasons. <coughs> and because of this difference, they are, I think, perceived historically in very different lights. To many, John Quincy Adams is a hero, albeit a tragic hero. Paul Wolfowitz, see, I got in Paul Wolfowitz, um, conversely, I think, is perceived by many as a villain. I actually don't think that that's fair. More appropriately, he might be called a victim, his own worst enemy. Regardless, I think, examined in tandem, they tell us a lot about the American empire and a lot about ourselves. Now, I'm sure you're all sufficiently uh, familiar with the outline of John Quincy Adams's life story, his background, to eliminate the need for me to, to deal with it in any detail at all. Um, he is, very briefly, still considered by many the greatest of all American secretaries of state. It was no contest with Henry Clay. And, acc and acclaimed um, as among the very best grand strategists by historians whose perspective differs as much as Walter Lefebvre and John Lewis Gaddis. Before he reached his teens, Adams was literally schooled in international affairs at his father's knee. I think that's very important. It's also important that his profound religious principles notwithstanding, Adams was in many ways the consummate realist, an opportunist steeped in the traditions of European realpolitik and power politics and wary of America's going abroad in search of monsters even monsters who suppressed liberty, like those who inhabited the Ottoman Empire. Yet he was also an ideologue, if I can use that word, a firm believer in both America's noble experiment and its manifest destiny. He was the lone Federalist to support Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase, and during his own tenure as Secretary of State, negotiated what may be equally important, the Transcontinental Treaty. 
if I had more time, I would read some of the most memorable prose that Samuel Flagg Bemis wrote about the, the, the outcome of those purchase, um, but I won't, but suffice it to say, he thought it was pretty thrilling. Um, and Adams himself was no less thrilled and also aware, which I think is important, of to whom he, owned, he owed his triumph. After signing the treaty, he wrote in his diary, I close the day with ejaculations of fervent gratitude to the giver of all good. But therein lay the rub and the tragedy. To Adams, slavery was a direct affront to the giver of all good, let alone his belief about America's ideals and mission. Within a year of the ratification of the Transcontinental Treaty, in other words, by 1820, he had become concerned about the compatibility of empire and liberty. To a large extent, I think that explains his own passive presidency when he concentrated on consolidation as opposed to expansion. And by the time he returned to Washington as a congressman, he was reaching the conclusion that America had to forego its quest to be an empire for liberty until, by abolishing slavery, it could become an empire of liberty. In 1845, Adams referred to the annexation of Texas, which for more than three decades he had advocated and argued that America was entitled to possess. He now called it the heaviest calamity that ever befell myself and my country. A year later, casting his vote in his final protest against the Mexican War, he suffered a massive stroke, um, and he died before ever leaving the Capitol building. Because he could not square the circle between empire and liberty, Adams, in the words of Walter Lefebvre, was a heroic and tragic figure whose failures are as instructive as his triumphs. Paul Wolfowitz's story is very different. The son of a Polish-born Cornell mathematics professor who immigrated to the United States prior to the Holocaust, Wolfowitz's introduction to foreign affairs could not have been more dissimilar than Adams's. He was not particularly political as a youth. He was a math whiz in high school. But he read, and these are his words, probably too many books on the Holocaust, which in his spare time he coupled with books about Hiroshima. Together he called the two events the polar horrors. Then at Cornell, Wolfowitz became interested in political theory, largely due to the influence of Alan Bloom. But although he went to the University of Chicago to study under Bloom's mentor, Leo Strauss, he blossomed under the mentorship of Albert Wolstetter, the grand theory of nuclear strategy. It was Wolstetter who introduced Wolfowitz to the world of Washington. Smitten by the Washington bug, Wolfowitz abandoned the academy for the world of public policy and served in various uh, capacities in every administration, beginning with the Ford, um, up through the second Bush administration, with the exception of um, the Clinton years. He never became the grand strategist that Adams did. Um, and in fact, he never made it to the top 
the way Adams did. But more than Adams, and for that matter, any other of my other subjects, I think Wolfowitz combined his policymaking role with that of the public intellectual. And as such, he developed, expressed, and became identified with a conception of an empire for liberty that was more articulate, more explicit than any of my subjects, with the possible exception of John Foster Dulles. And as I argue, Dulles actually walked back from his notion once he achieved power. Dulles talked the talk, but Wolfowitz walked the walk. And indeed, while many Republicans left Washington during the Carter administration, Wolfowitz, although not without misgivings, found Carter's emphasis on human rights very appealing. During both the Reagan and Bush administrations, he earned a reputation as a, quote, foreign policy iconoclast, a mild-mannered intellectual with a steely ideological core. What Wolfowitz was, in fact, and he defies categorization in many ways, was really a muscular Wilsonian, an avid proponent of global democratization and liberation. His study of the Holocaust taught Wolfowitz that there was great evil in the world, and his emotion and intellect drove him to the uncompromising conclusions that America had the destiny and the responsibility to rid the world of that evil and replace it with liberty. Ronald Reagan referred rhetorically to freedom fighters. Wolfowitz endowed that term with real meaning. No contemporary American, I believe, believed more strongly in the empire for liberty. Turning Adams on his head, he argued that Americans must go abroad in search of monsters. Well, that much more because Iraq and the Middle East had occupied his life actually through most of his, his adult period. He'd actually written his dissertation um, dealing with it. Uh, Wolfowitz's role as a pivotal architect of Iraq, Operation Iraqi Freedom was, if not foreordained, certainly logical and appropriate. And while the fate that befell him was certainly tragic, it was also, one might argue, logical and appropriate, if you can use the word. Um, um, we need not spend any time on the events themselves. Um, and it's possible, although I doubt it, that Iraq will evolve in a way to at least partially vindicate Wolfowitz. But even if it is, it does, that, that Wolfowitz would have long sort of left the public stage, not just from Washington, but from the World Bank. And I think there was a relationship. But the tragedy of Iraq, and I do call it a tragedy, may in the long run transcend the war itself, and for that matter, its influence on Afghanistan and, and the overall the global war on terrorism. Without in any way denying America's devotion to liberty, uh, I think history shows that Americans often, intentionally or unintentionally, neither promoted nor protected liberty for non-Americans and sometimes Americans themselves. Empire and liberty are not intrinsically compatible. I argue that to an unprecedented extent, the global war on terrorism made recognition of this tension unavoidable. 
interdirected and with short attention spans. Most Americans historically intuited that America's wars were not wars of choices, but rather manifestations of its mission and responsibilities. Even when actions and ideals did, did seem to clash in Mexico, in the Philippines, in Vietnam, the behavior was and still is perceived as aberrant, and the protests against it were fleeting. This may also turn out to be the case with Iraq. Still, I think one can argue that, uh, that when, when Obama um, campaigned on this issue of change, whether it came was, was realized or not, it's a different story. But when he did, um, it was really to focus on this tension as it had become so manifest. And today, even though the rhetoric is very different, it's much less ambitious with little talk of either empire or liberty. Um, and there's no talk about an empire for liberty anymore. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you, Richard. Um, it's now my uh, distinct pleasure to introduce our two distinguished commentators. Uh, first to speak will be Robert Kagan. Robert Kagan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a position that he officially began today. So welcome to uh, my first to, official welcome act. to Brookings <laughs> and to Cato. Uh, Bob Kagan is the author of several books, including most recently The Return of History and the End of Dreams, published by Knopf in 2008. His previous book, Dangerous Nation, America's Place in the World from its Earliest Days to the Dawn of the 20th Century, was the winner of the 2008 Lepgold Prize and a 2007 finalist for the Lionel Gelber Prize. His book of Paradise and Power was a New York Times bestseller, a bestseller in the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, and Canada, and has been translated into 25 languages. I'd love to know which of, the, which of those 25 would be the most obscure, but we, we can talk about that later. Um, before joining Brookings, Kagan was a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He uh, previously served in the State Department uh, from 1984 to 1988 as a member of the policy planning staff, as principal speechwriter for Secretary of State George Shultz, and a deputy for policy in the Bureau of Inter-American Affairs. He's a graduate of Yale University and Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and holds a Ph.D. in American History from American University. Derek Liebert, our second speaker, is a partner in the management consultant firm uh, MAPAG, has taught foreign policy at Georgetown University since 1996, and is the author of several books, including To Dare and Conquer, Special Operations and the Destiny of Nations, and The 50-Year Wound, How America's Cold War Victory Has Shaped Our World. Next week... Simon & Schuster will release his latest book, Magic and Mayhem, The Delusions of American Foreign Policy from Korea and Afghanistan, and uh, I'm lucky to receive an advanced copy. Thank you, Derek. Uh, he's also a co-author of the MIT Press Trilogy on the business and policy impacts of the information technology revolution, including the book The Future of the Electronic Marketplace. 
Derek was a visiting fellow at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and a research fellow at Harvard's Center for Science and International Affairs. He's founding editor of uh, the journal International Economy. He holds a BA in economics from Vanderbilt, an MPP from Columbia, and a DPhil in economics from Oxford. So uh, without any further ado, Bob Kagan. Oh, thank you, Chris. And it's a I'm sorry, Bob. Can you can you speak? Oh, you want to the, please do, yeah. It's better for the it's better for the cameras there, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's better than they can see me. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> thank you. It's great to be at Cato on my first day at Brookings. I haven't done anything at Brookings, but now I'm doing something at Cato, so I don't know how they're going to feel about that, but <laughs> we'll find out. Anyway, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, P Professor Richard Emmerman, uh, who had nice enough to hand me up at uh, Temple or wherever we were in Philadelphia a few months ago. Um, and, I, and I want to commend him on the book that he's written. Uh, it, it's no small topic. Uh, and to do it, and I think under 200 text pages, is no small accomplishment. Uh, and, of course, trying to weave together six biographies is, uh, is something, because you do have to make yourself something of an expert in some very distinct fields and personalities, and, and, I, and I think he's done that. And overall, I would say uh, uh, Professor Immerman has struck a blow that needs to be struck by as many people as possible, against uh, a very prevalent uh, and false historical dichotomy about the United States, which is basically that the United States used to be a wonderful country uh, that minded its own business uh, after its founding, and then pick your date, 1898, 1945, uh, the, the day that George W. Bush was elected, all of a sudden it changed and became a completely different country. Um, and what Professor Immerman demonstrates in this book and also in his talk today is that there is a great deal of continuity, and certainly on this question uh, of America's uh, behavior in the world. Uh, I agree that there isn't total continuity, but I probably would put myself more on the side of believing in a pretty steady progression of American foreign policy. And even though my father who's a historian and is what they used to call a great man type has a great man approach to history, I find myself very unhappily uh, being more in the school of uh, larger uh, forces at work. And that's particularly true in the case of the United States. But I'll get back to that in a second. I thought I would raise just basically three kinds of questions in ascending order of importance, uh, just as a means of, of maybe provoking some conversation on the, on the topic that Professor Emmerman has raised here. Of uh, the, the least importance is the discussion about what is an empire and what constitutes imperialism. Uh, I must say it is my least favorite discussion. I've debated it with Neil Ferguson, who loves empire, uh, and I had to be in a position of telling him how much I didn't love the idea of empire. Um, and, and what is an empire uh, has become almost impossible uh, to describe. There is a very simple definition of empire, which is... Uh, the direct rule over a subject people, uh, but clearly uh, there are so many uh, gradations of what that can mean that by the, by the time you're finished with this conversation, you, I personally feel like I wish I'd never taken it up to begin with. Uh, and, and I guess when I, when I ran across uh, this definition that, uh, that Richard puts, uh, has in his book on page 12, that the barometer is whether the external influence can shape the lives of the native population in such a way that it molds the population's politics, I really feel like that covers a lot of ground. 
China, in many ways, molds American politics in a variety of ways by the influence that it has economically. Um, I, and that's, that's the most extreme example because no one would say that China had imperial control over the United States. Great larger powers uh, almost invariably shape the politics of smaller powers in their midst. It's certainly true of the United States in the Western Hemisphere with or without active intervention, but it's also true in Europe uh, where, wherever there are larger states and smaller states. So I, I guess I would make a plea for, for defining imperialism somewhere a little bit more stringently than influencing the politics of other peoples. Uh, we all nations in exercise degrees of influence over each other's internal politics, and very powerful nations exercise a very great deal of influence over weaker nations. Um, and why we even need to get into this discussion about what is an empire and not an empire, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a stand-in for something else, uh, that, that, the, that the discussion of empire is really a stand-in for a discussion of power. And I'll get back to that uh, uh, in a second. That's my more important question. The second question is, who isn't an imperialist in the United States? Um, we have six figures here. He could have chosen 600 other figures. I'm sure it's only coincidence that they're all Republicans, uh, <laughs> including before there was a Republican Party. John Quincy Adams is certainly a proto-Whig at the very least. Certainly not a Jeffersonian Democrat. I'm Benjamin Franklin would probably be a Republican if you were around today. Uh, but then the rest of your guys are all Republicans, even though the Republican Party keep, has shifted significantly in its purpose. So I'm sure that was all accidental on your part. Uh, but I could name a few Democrats who qualify as imperialists. Um, not, not least, I suppose, would be Woodrow Wilson, uh, who's setting aside having the, a very grand sense of what America's role in the world could be, but in a much more narrow sense in terms of actively intervening in the Western Hemisphere uh, to impose American will on places like Haiti and the Dominican Republic and Mexico and Nicaragua and Honduras and, you know, I could go on. Um, but the question is an interesting one because even though I think uh, Richard attempts to avoid the trap of thinking that imperialism is a conspiracy foisted by a small number of people on an unwitting and unwilling American populace. Uh, nevertheless, the, the danger of delineating specific traits of specific people in trying to understand this does uh, run the risk of not including all the many people who don't have those specific traits, but who nevertheless were very supportive of the policies that these particular gentlemen uh, were also supportive of. Uh, just taking that the famous, uh, at least now famous or infamous imperialist, imperialist episode, which is the Spanish-American War, uh, that was probably one of the most popular wars in American history. And uh, Lodge's role in uh, pressing for that conflict uh, must take at least second place, but certainly is right uh, parallel to that of, say, William Jennings Bryan. Uh, who's, I think, famous for his isolationism, but uh, was not only enthusiastic about going to war over to free, to liberate Cuba, but like Teddy Roosevelt, wanted to raise a regiment and lead it himself. It could have been William Jennings Bryan, the Rough Rider, uh, if things had turned out differently. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, it was really what we would call the left side, or the liberal left side of the political spectrum in the United States uh, in 1898 that was most enthusiastic about uh, this liberating episode. And so uh, you can quote Henry Cabot Lodge 
saying a lot of things about how we have an obligation and responsibility to spread freedom and defend the Cubans, but I could quote a hundred people of all types in America saying exactly the same thing. Um, so that's, there's always a risk that you exclude, including, by the way, Woodrow Wilson, who was then a uh, professor, and, uh, and even when it came to taking the Philippines, where there was a greater division and where people like William Jennings Bryan got off the bus, uh, there were other famous Democrats who did not get off the bus, and again, Woodrow Wilson would be one of them. He took a very uh, a positive view of the American role in uh, educating the Filipinos up to civilization. So, uh, and then, so skipping ahead, as Professor Immerman does to our own time, uh, just taking the Iraq War, for instance, uh, there's not a lot of mention of the Clinton administration's attitude towards Iraq, but I dare say uh, George W. Bush, Bush probably said nothing about Iraq that Bill Clinton didn't say first. Um, in terms of, you know, the actual war, uh, there was a vote in the Senate. Uh, I believe the vote was 72 to 28. Uh, people like uh, Chris Dodd, so never mind Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Chuck Hagel, uh, Tom Harkin, uh, voted for uh, that war. Uh, so you just, we just need to be careful that we not uh, isolate this. If there is a problem uh, with American foreign policy, it is not a narrow problem. It is a deep and broad problem. Uh, and that takes me to my third discussion, which is the good and the bad in American foreign policy. Certainly, Professor Emmons has something that is undeniably true which is that the United States has attempted to do some good in the world. It arguably has done some good in the world, although I don't know where we stand exactly to make those judgments. Clearly, we're standing somewhere in some moral universe in order to decide what is good or what is not good. Uh, but, and, and yet we would also say, standing in that same moral universe, that the United States has done uh, harm in the world, has done bad in the world, sometimes simply because it's done bad, and sometimes, as Professor Immerman points out, uh, in the process of attempting to do good. Now, I would say that identifying that fact, and it is a fact, is not the end of our investigations, but actually should be the beginning of our discussion. Because having recognized that truth, and I must say, my own work in American history, the book that uh, Chris mentioned, Dangerous Nation, is filled with that, uh, that problem, if you will, that paradox, if you will. Having recognized it, I don't know what kind of guide that is for foreign policy. And that, and that I think, is a pertinent question. We like to think, all of us, but uh, Americans in particular, when they are unhappy with the outcome of a certain foreign policy, they would like to say that that is the product of a bad portion of America. Maybe it's a bad few people. Maybe it's a bad strain in the American character. When they like what has happened, when they like the outcome, that's a product of the good America and the people we do like or the good strain in America, uh, foreign policy. Uh, I would say the more complicated and troubling, I suppose, reality is they're both the product of the same America, that the same American foreign policies lead to uh, a kind of messianic vision of how to rebuild the world first by fighting World War II and then trying to establish a world order after it and lead us into Iraq and Kosovo uh, and any number of other places. And so, again, recognizing the dichotomy, as, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr did 
pretty much better than anybody, is only the beginning of, of the process. Uh, trying to figure out what to do about that uh, is the hard part. And I think Niebuhr's message, uh, who, who was sort of the one to sort of plaster to our faces uh, this, this problem, uh, that in the attempt to do good, you will do evil because it's the nature of the system. And that's another point that I think we need to get to. But having confronted that reality, do you then pull back and do nothing? Or do you still nevertheless try to navigate your way through this complex moral universe that we live in? Uh, I would argue that for the United States, it is inconceivable that we would pull back from the world far enough to avoid these moral conundrums and these moral compromises. Uh, I don't know how far back we would have to pull. We might have to give away all the territory we conquered uh, over the years, but even if we didn't do that, the exercise of power, which is what the United States has been doing for 200 years, is a morally fraught uh, business. And the tragedy that William Edmund Williams described and that Professor Immerman is talking about here, the thing about a tragedy is it's not clear that you can avoid it. And if, you are, if the tragedy is that in speaking about, in, in holding high these values of liberty, you nevertheless, by the very exercise of power, at times and perhaps even frequently deny others their absolute right to liberty, uh, that is a problem. And it is a continuing problem, and I would, I would argue there is no escaping from that problem. Uh, the United States is not exceptional in the sense that it has power, it seeks power, it wields power. I would even argue American people enjoy wielding power, many times in lofty, for lofty purposes, but often enough for selfish purposes, and sometimes for lofty purposes that lead to bad ends, and now you finally have to use your minute thing. <laughs> I'm going to end by, by addressing, so I'm going to leave that sitting out there. I'm going to end by addressing briefly the question of whether empire is the enemy of liberty and whether the world, for a liberty at home, and whether the global war on terror, whatever, or the thing that used to be known as that, uh, is a unique and uniquely revealing of this contradiction. Everybody knows, I think, that this discussion about the contradiction between empire and liberty goes back to the debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, at least. And Patrick Henry made the argument uh, that it was indeed going to destroy liberty if the Federalists won and they created this empire that he claimed they wanted. And by the way, I don't think he did mean that in an anodyne way. I think he meant it in a hostile way. I would say that worse that any infringement that's occurred to, on American liberties during the global war on terror were the infringement on American liberties during World War I, uh, when German Americans were persecuted, when socialists were locked up for daring to suggest that the United States shouldn't be engaged in World War I, all with the full uh, backing of Woodrow Wilson, that great uh, believer in global liberty. I would argue that uh, what occurred during World War II was probably a greater impingement 
on the rights of Americans, and never mind getting into the McCarthy period. Uh, so the question is, is it really that new, or have we faced this problem before, uh, and, and how should we feel about it? My argument is uh, that America, at times of stress, whether it's the Alien Sedition Act or the, 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 uh, the Palmer Raids, in times of stress, uh, tolerate more than they should the impingements on their freedoms, but that when the period of stress passes, they return, thankfully, uh, to a better understanding of how those freedoms should be protected. And I look forward to a day when we will not be so preoccupied uh, by, this, by, the, by the threats that many people see, that we will return to a more normal situation. We have not, under President Barack Obama, returned to it yet. I'm sorry for going on no, so long. Thank Thanks. You, thank you. One point that makes Empire for Liberty so engaging is the lucid use of history. And one could also offer similar praise on the recent book of our host, Chris, and his The Power Problem, which also marshals 200 years of history in an utterly convincing fashion. Americans, however, have a peculiar view of history. On one hand, we ignore our own history, let alone that of any other cultures. That arguably can be for the best. In Emerson's words, we're the country of tomorrow. We're always looking ahead. Yet, on the other hand, as a nation of lawyers, we hunger for precedent, and we're always reaching out for precedent. Therein is danger. It leads to a national style of foreign policymaking by analogy, always trying to put together pretty loose, slippery comparisons. So we get to the question of empire, and nor do I want to dwell on definitions, and my brief comments are only going to be in three parts. We can talk briefly about empire, and then I'd like to focus on the profound profile in the book of John Foster Dulles and comment on the Paul Wolfowitz chapter as well. But first to empire. Indeed, we get preoccupied with talking about empire when the country is in a pickle. Like in 1948, as the Cold War got ever chillier and a million-plus Americans rushed out to buy if not necessarily to read Arnold Toynbee's volumes, A Study of History. Ditto in the last years of the Cold War, right before the evil empire itself was about to collapse, but as we were getting squeezed by Japanese competition, the Paul Kennedy mega-seller, the rise and fall of the great empires, swept the enthusiasts. <laughs> Calling America an empire strikes me as diversionary. It takes us away from hard facts of history that might be more instructive. Empire is a multiplex word, and it has been through the millennia ever since Athens wanted to be supreme in Hellas and right through today in the years of American cultural assimilation and military preeminence. But when we talk about a dynamic term, when we find ourselves boxed into definitions of 
calling ourselves anti-colonial imperialists. One might argue that the definition has gotten pretty squishy. To me, empire has the overarching quality of we're here, we're the boss, you can't get rid of us. This is an ambition that rarely has gripped Americans. And to dwell on the founding fathers, as has been done by the historians, when Washington, Jefferson, and Jay spoke about empire, they weren't talking about landing marines in Da Nang. They were talking about empire in the same way that the British had spoken about it when the term first was applied to the British Isles, inhabiting for what the founding fathers saw as an utterly empty continent and thereby expanding outward into an utterly empty continent, empty in their eyes. It's hard to imagine an empire that is so easily manipulated by its clients, whether a Syngman Rhee after the Korean War, whether Diem or Thieu during the Vietnam War, whether arguably Israel over the past 40 years. It's hard to imagine an empire that can't harness its closest allies, such as England, to contribute even a brigade during the fierce war in Vietnam, and to have British ships happily sail into Haiphong right until 1969, carrying on a lucrative trade. This doesn't define an empire. Most of all, empires have competent administrative cadres, or an elite administrative class to oversee relationships with the world. We don't have that. We make our foreign policy in a notoriously amateurish, slapdash fashion, full of political patronage, rather than having an administrative mandarinate for better or for worse. But most of all, when we get diverted into talking about empire, we get onto shaky ground with the facts I think, for example, of the Niall Ferguson article in the April issue of Foreign Affairs. He lists 13 countries that Britain has liberated over the decade 1945 to 55. About half of those countries are incorrect or misleading, including Iran, which was never part of the British Empire, Egypt, which was independent, quote-unquote, in 1926, and so forth. So we get moving away from the core issues that we can find perhaps as an instructive guide to the present. In the Empire for Liberty book, I loved the Dulles profile because Dulles is a statesman that is profoundly misunderstood. And there is great material for those who want to drill deeper into Dulles in the British Public Record Office archives because the British perspective on Dulles was on one hand, utterly puzzled, and then toward the end, as he died over his last 18 months from cancer, 58, 59, one of grudging admiration. But you also get a different perspective on Dulles, anything but the crusader. America got clobbered in the Korean War. We had the longest military retreat in our history. We plunged into North Korea and found ourselves in unexpected war with China, we succeeded on only the limited initial mission. It was a re 
treat and a loss, widely regarded as such. What does America do after we regularly lose wars? We retrench and we set up pickets. What we did after the loss in Korea was we went nuclear, and we had what was called a celestial Maginot line of air defenses and nukes, anything that would get us further away from the world. What Dulles did was dash about and set up treaties to share the burden. He suffered greatly in putting together CETO, great anxiety because he feared where CETO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, would lead. Dulles is also the only senior American official on record that I've come across who agonized over why in the world should America be the premier military power on the planet in the first place. One objection that I had with the Dulles chapter is the description of Suez, where we talked about the Anglo-French-Israeli invasion of Egypt, and I thought we went way too gently on Israel. Remember that it was in 1956 that the United States went way out of its way to have Israel condemned, Israel specifically, in the United Nations Security Council for chronic attacks going back over the previous two years on Syria. We had Henry Cabot Lodge, of all people, Jr., telling the Security Council that the Middle East situation has been inflamed by the Israeli attacks on its neighbors going back two years. This didn't even concern Suez. So if we talk about imperial expansion, there are other players to consider besides the usual great power suspects. Let me wrap up by talking about the Paul Wolfowitz chapter. And I don't want to be unkind, but this book does personalize and it does bring us up to today. And if one was talking to a business audience, one would be far rougher in the personal attacks and the bottom line accountability. All the other individuals that have been mentioned, Jefferson, Adams, Seward, Dulles, Lodge, these are men of accomplishment. These are either great entrepreneurs, eminent law partners, or successful politicians. Mr. Wolfowitz, in my opinion, is really a cog in the machine. He would be interchangeable with any person benefiting from the American political appointee system in the national security slots of being an associate undersecretary, deputy secretary, assistant secretary, deputy assistant secretary, deputy secretary, and so forth. Anyone could fit that role over the fraught decades since the silly notions of detente, which he very admirably confronted right on target. But when we talk about a Mr. Wolfowitz or any of the interchangeable people in the national security cadre as brilliant, one has to offer some caution here. American approaches to national security policymaking are full of self-deceptions. David Halberstam brought this to the forefront in talking about the best and the brightest. And one could apply such skepticism to the latest cadre of national security policymakers who brought the country into Iraq 
and who arguably are now leading it deeper into Afghanistan, all attended top schools, and many have been described as smart, brilliant, and so forth. But articulateness here often gets seriously confused with intellect. Brilliance among the best and the brightest says nothing about qualities of judgment, teamwork, perspective, and the courage to change one's mind, qualities that would be basic material in America's successful businesses. So to have notions about transforming the Middle East and the world of Islam politically, quote, unquote, might indicate great shortages of judgment. And to see an op-ed such as yesterday equating the future of Iraq with that of Korea shows, again, the shaky historical ground one gets on. Occupying in Iraq means that you have the 38th parallel around every corner. (laughs) There is no comparison to Korea, unless perhaps one wants to install a massacre maker like Syngman Rhee for another eight years to keep things quiet. One final quibble with the book and then my conclusion, and this strikes me as something I've never understood about Mr. Wolfowitz specifically. He was correct in being so skeptical of CIA assessments. He knew during the Cold War, especially during the dangerous days of the 1970s, so-called detente, that CIA estimates were grievously, grievously off the mark. But Nonetheless, he followed through on CIA estimates 20 years later in following up on weapons of mass destruction, a belief that there might be some terrorist ties here and there, and being far less skeptical about CIA conclusions than I would have expected. A quibble in the book is that assessment called Team B of 1976 The author believes that the Team B conclusions, most scholars apparently have a consensus that the Team B CIA conclusions were wrong. I've argued otherwise. Team B was entirely correct and didn't even know the worst about the Soviet offensive capacities, which was the massive germ warfare capabilities and the deep civil defense capabilities. We had a great, great dare to fear from the evil empire in its last most dangerous decades as it tilted. Let me offer the final conclusion and leave aside empire, leave aside the biographies of current players of the game. My conclusion is that over the decades, certainly since Korea, we suffer from at least six serious self-deceptions. One is the infatuation with crisis, the need to get something done in the span of an election cycle. Another one is the American managerial mystique. This comes from deep within the culture. We believe that any problem can be solved. McNamara said that actually any global problem can be solved. Third is this infatuation with star power that comes with being a great individualistic democracy. We always make stars and celebrities. We have the best and the brightest. We have the wizards such as a McNamara or a Mac Bundy 
in the Kennedy years, or a magician like Henry Kissinger, or the dream team enthusiasts that took us into nation building in Iraq. The star power celebrity making as applied to national security is highly distinctly American. Point four would be uh, intellectual shortcuts that are made constantly. We don't do the homework. We make foreign policy in an amateurish slapdash fashion. I would cite the war with China in Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, detente as examples. Five would be the unconcern about history, which we spoke about at the beginning, having no interest in the history of other cultures, let alone ours, yet at the same time searching for precedent. And six, and finally, is that beguiling belief that everybody wants to be like us because they're 63 Starbucks in Beijing or because Saddam in his last election in 2002 had a campaign theme song that blared out all over Baghdad, and it was Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. <laughs> the, notion, the notion of an immigrant culture, as we are, that everybody wants to be like us and will quickly get assimilated in their home countries as well. My one-minute or less conclusion is that less is more. Play to our strengths in money, in culture, in technology, in ideals, and recognize the extent to which our political military enthusiasms, more often than not, blow up in our face. Thank you, Thank you very much. Um, Richard, do you want to comment at all, or do you want to throw it open to the audience? Okay. We have about uh, 20 minutes for Q&A. Uh, a few uh, ground rules here at Cato. Um, uh, wait for the microphone. Uh, that's for the benefit of people watching online so they can hear your question. Uh, please identify yourself. And, and we do uh, apply the Jeopardy rule here at the Cato Institute, which means you must frame your question in the form of a question and keep it short. Uh, so with that, uh, in the back. My name is Richard Ranger. I'm with API, but speaking for myself. Thanks to all three gentlemen for a really interesting afternoon. A question, does empire, in terms of how it is perceived, and conceivably in terms of how imperial strategies or tactics are executed, depend significantly on whether one is on offense or on defense? I realize that distinction is not always precise and there are gradations, but one could argue that John Foster Dulles um, was a captain of a defensive team, <laughs> that Henry Cabot Lodge was a captain of an offensive team, and conceivably John Quincy Adams was a captain of a defensive team as well. So is are, are choices constrained? Are perceptions, whether with the public or elsewhere, fueled by whether um, those ambitions and strategies are executed on offense or on defense? Mm. That's a good question. Richard, you want to take that? Um, it is a good question. Um, with Dulles, actually, I, I sort of play around with those different terms, and I think uh, to an extent one would have to be more um, precise in terms of the, the chronological parameters. For example, if you 
mentioned John Quincy Adams through much of his career. He was on the offensive team. Uh, he then switched to the defensive team. Dulles is associated with the offensive team, but yet in many ways ultimately ended up on the defensive team. Um, so uh, I, I'm not sure you could make that type of precise correlation. Having that said, uh, in, in, um, when I refer to Dulles as an empire for security, and I deal with what he called sort of the boundary authority situation, uh, that had to do with a global order in which if it's not mine, it's yours, and vice versa. So I would, using my mushy word for empire, probably apply it to, to both offensively and defensively. A related, I mean, a related theme that comes up in, among political scientists is status quo power versus revolutionary power. What are you trying to do? You're trying to maintain what you have or expand what you have. And again, that's a distinction about the for or the of. That's one of the, I mean, creeps in there. Right. Um, uh, down here. Hi. I'm, I'm Kenneth Rothschild. This is just independent. I'm not representing anybody. It seems to me, and I'd like a response to this from the panel, it seems to me that we're always stuck in the same type of academic analysis of things, and we don't get um, a rather across-the-board uh, concept. For example, the question should be, why are people imperialists? We can go through all the countries and so forth like that. We're no different than anybody else. And the point is, because we can get away with it. <laughs> right. And and And... I mean, the wolf gets away with what they can get away with, too. So I think we have to go to a deeper analysis of what is it within the human spirit that creates this need for expansion. And I'll, I'll just I'll stop Quickly. in a second. Yeah. But I also would like to know an analysis in this concept of who the winners are and who the losers are. And that's both domestically and by country. So I think a lot of times within the country there are losers, the people who get suckered into fighting some of these wars. And why do we repeat? Why is the main episode in, in, um, in uh, San Juan? Um, Spanish-American War, right. Spanish-American okay. War, the same as the Bay of Tonkin. Why do we get fooled by the same stuff over and over again? This, this gets to your point, Bob, a little bit about we're not so different than others. This is about power, which, which plays to a kind of classical structural realist argument that you that power begets you know expansion and it just kind of do you, can you? He wants to get less that? academic. Uh, well, he just went into structural realism. I mean, come on, trying to bridge the gap uh, here. I know. So, you know. Look, I mean, I, I think there is you know, it, uh, is it too academic to quote Thucydides? I mean, you know, as, <laughs> at, at the at the in the famous Melian dialogue, the, the of men we know and of Gods we believe, they rule where they can, and the weak suffer what they must. And there is a basic truth to that. But you know what? It, it doesn't take you as far as, you, as, as one thinks because, of course, there are many times when we don't rule where we can. Uh, we're not simply, and this is where the academic you know, realism falls into trouble, nations are not simply maximizing power all the time. They're not simply uh, wielding as much influence and stomping as many people as they can. Sometimes nations are like that, very rarely. Usually their exercise of power is filtered through a worldview, 
which justifies some exercises of power and, and somehow provides no justification for other kinds of exercise of power, and different worldviews deal with that differently. That's why you get back to questions of, of ideology. And uh, in the United States case, we justify power very much on the basis of the fact that we believe we are simply right. Uh, about the way human beings should behave. Now, we don't know whether we're, I mean, we don't know whether we're actually right, but certainly that's the way Americans behave. I don't know, on the, on the winners and losers question, I don't, I mean, if you read uh, the letters of many, as sometimes we're able to do, the letters of many soldiers or the comments of many soldiers who go off and fight these wars, um, they often feel like they're fighting for a cause, and they feel like they're fighting for a cause even after people back home have decided the cause isn't worth it. Now, are they suckers, uh, you know, because uh, they, they were misled, or, or, or are they right? And maybe the people back home are wrong. I mean, I, I don't find when you talk to most soldiers, including those who've come back from Iraq or Afghanistan, that they feel like they were suckered. If anything, they question why the United States, you know, hasn't provided more support for them. But... You know, I, I think it's not as simple who's getting, you know, who's the winner and who's the loser in this situation. But maybe other people have different views on that. Derek or Richard, you want to weigh in on this? The author first. Uh, you know, just just very quickly. Um, you know, first, although in, in general I agree, I think that it does make any difference um, when you're talking about Americans or or the United States. I do think that culture and ideology and that types of makeup is a driver of international behavior. Um, it's also um, can produce sort of a worldview in which there's basically a great deal of denial is, is, is going on. Uh, and one of the purposes of the book, I think, was to get us to confront a question, which actually Bob does brilliantly, I think, in, in his book, Dangerous Nation, um, that this is something that, that Americans can come to grips with. And as a, as a historian... Uh, I think it's very difficult to sort of label winners and losers because, once again, it's, 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 it's not that clean. Um, that's basically what it is. There? There are indeed winners and losers. 20-year-olds, for example, are always enthusiastic when they come back from <laughs> war. Polls showed that returning veterans from Vietnam by vast majority, said they would go there and do it again and fight for a noble cause. Indeed, they were fighting for a noble cause. But that's a commonality among all soldiers. They all believe they should have been supported more. They all believe that they were fighting for right. Pick your army, your empire. There are losers, however, certainly at this juncture in America life. They're very visible losers when we have a trillion-dollar war, or at least one trillion-dollar war and the other going up fast. Why does one of the privileges of living in America have to be that we have a lower life expectancy than other developed nations? For instance, why is the healthcare system so inaccessible to so many of our countrymen? Elder care? Why is Alzheimer's research, what we're all going to encounter sooner or later, underfunded at $400 million a year, there are definitely losers when we have a big counterproductive approach to the world driven by enthusiasm that any problem can be solved and that more is better and that indeed we are always right. Uh, back in the back there. I'm going to go back and forth here. They put the lights up so I can see people in the back this time. That's good. 
Yes, sir. Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. Uh, I would like to congratulate all the the spectrum of speakers that you have. I mean, we have heard almost every kind of argument, pros and cons. So that's the good part of this. Just my question is: Have now that this imperial empire called the United States, it's in uh, it it's in a really bleeding. Is it time to lick its wounds and quiet down and and behave like, like uh, Mr. Kagan said, it cannot fall out, it cannot completely isolate itself, but behave in, an, uh, in a manner where war is not an option in most diplomatic decision-making or negotiations. Who wants to take that? See, the, the, author, the author is responsible for, see, right. he can defer, see, this is. Well, I mean, let, let, let me just say, uh, very briefly, and, and this is to some extent responding to, to Bob's comment, um, I, uh, I hope in the book that I don't leave the impression that uh, international affairs, and particularly those which involve the United States, do not establish or create these moral conundrums, and that um, the, the, the decisions that had to be made were easy decisions. Um, I think they were difficult, and for all those involved. I criticize those like Paul Wolfowitz because I don't think they were difficult enough. Um, I, I think that uh, he developed, and I try to explain why I think that was to some extent, um, a certain certitude, an uncompromising attitude, something that, that Niebuhr dealt with very extensively. You know, this, there's good and evil, um, and you just stomp out the evil. Um, so do I have an answer to that? I leave that to the political scientist. I don't Let me say I think that the most I can hope for, if I can use the expe expectation, is that reading books like mine, and mine certainly isn't, and, uh, would um, lead to not we're not going to go to war, um, but a, a certain amount of restraint, a recognition of the perils, which I think, if anything, um, is, is more significant or more salient now because the United States does wield such overwhelming power. I think it was easier, in a way, to, th to think about these by some people's standards, any case, when we did not have this sort of overwhelming power that is now, so that one believes that there won't be the cost that there is. I think that cost is there. Um, but I think we're deluding ourselves to think there'll be a point where we're going to rule out war as an option. And frankly, I don't know if I would prescribe ruling out war as an option. Uh, down here? Right there. Yeah, hi. My name is Tom Hanshaw. I, the, your point about overwhelming power sort of made me think about some variables that are something that you're not covering, but nevertheless are key here, and that, in my mind, is the economic power of the United States. And when you just you use the comment right now, overwhelming power, I mean, given the, the U.S. debt situation, this overwhelming power could disappear tomorrow. And there was an interesting article in Barron's uh, this week about the French Empire, uh, you know, before the Revolution, the Ottoman Empire, and so on and so forth. Now, obviously, that's, it's difficult to incorporate that into your 
your analysis, but nevertheless, by focusing on these different biographies, sometimes you have the feeling that you're, you're focusing on the wrong variables in terms of looking at the, the, the major trends in terms of the American empire. So I, I would get, uh, appreciate your thoughts about this, given the fact that, that you do have a history of empires exploding based on, on their economic power, their absence of economic powers, and Ferguson is one person who's focused on that, and this, this, this author of, of Barron's is another. It, it seems like it's that 800-pound gorilla in the, in the room there when you, you start talking about some of these, some of these issues. So I'd be, I'd be curious to get your, your thoughts. Thank you. I mean, another way to ask this question even would be, should, would, would another book focus on six secretaries of treasury as opposed to six secretaries of state? Um, you know. uh, if, just very briefly, and, and I, I, I won't really answer that um, in any specific way other than to say that, as, as Chris mentioned, I spent a lot of my time studying the 1950s, um, particularly the Eisenhower administration, in which that great equation, as it was known, was, was, was fundamental. Um, and it sort of tangentially works its way into the, this book. So I certainly am, am very sympathetic to what you're, you're saying. Um, however, I'm also, I think, susceptible to all the literature that I read which really makes it very clear that at least in terms of a military potential at this point, uh, the United States retains this overwhelming superiority, but it could dissipate. Uh, along the rail there, sir? Uh, right? No? And well, Go ahead, Swami. Go ahead. Take it. Yes. Uh, there is some feeling of people... Bl- Please identify yourself, sir. Sorry. I'm Swami Iyer of the Cato Institute. Uh, Thank you. A, a lot of people think that after events in Iraq and Afghanistan, the United States is in a different mood. But I put it to you, you know, I'm surprised that after 9-11, there has been no other terrorist attack on the USA. If there is, do you think USA will go to war on that once again <laughs> from wherever it originated? Right. So I, I, I've, I've wondered this myself. Is, is there an Iraq syndrome? And if there is, what would it take to break us out of the Iraq syndrome? Bob, you have a thought on that? I don't think that, I mean, we owe, every time we've had a war in recent years, everybody said, this is the last time, we're never going to do that again, and and then two years later, I mean, it's really quite astonishing. Somalia, uh, the Balkans, Kosovo, after every one of these, uh, okay, well, uh, we're done with that. And that is, I mean, whoever's been talking about Americans not recognizing themselves in the mirror, that's a perfect example of it. Americans are always shocked to find themselves going to war, and they go to war every two or three years. Uh, throughout much of their history in one way or another. So uh, I think there isn't an Iraq syndrome, amazingly. And I think, uh, you know, if you just look at the way... Look at the way President Obama talks. After all, he was elected, theoretically, as the Iraq syndrome president. And, um, you know, when he talks about uh, our military being the steel in our ship of state as he did uh, uh, last night. That's quite a line. I mean, uh, Jack Ken- that's a Jack Kennedy kind of Ronald Reagan, muscular American foreign policy type line. I'm waiting for the substantial defense budget cuts that are going to come in this administration. We're spending between 600 and $700 billion a year on defense. Uh, there isn't even a great national outcry for it. Maybe, maybe I'm in the wrong room to say that, but in general there, there is. isn't a great it's huge, it's a massive huge national huge outcry outcome. against this. I don't even see any Democrats running on it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I think a lot of this has to do with 9-11, because I think we still live in a 9-11. The, the syndrome is the 9-11 syndrome, for better and for worse, by the way. But it is, that's still the issue, and the fact that there hasn't been another attack does not mean that Americans, at least a majority of Americans, don't support uh, the need for a strong military capacity and a willingness to act. And the answer to your question, if we were attacked again, would we go out 
if we thought we could find whoever did it, uh, and in, you bet, uh, and add another trillion-dollar war to the two trillion-dollar wars. All right, we have time for one more question uh, back there, sir. My name is Jacob Daniele. I'm here by myself. Um, what do foreign policy people look like in the future? <laughs> they're they're bipeds. handsome. We're by handsome. Yes, uh, they're thin. They're the well dressed. <laughs> what are the what are tall the and young? <laughs> what are the backgrounds and qualities? Give the discussion about biographies. What are, what what do the people look like who are going to be shaping foreign? That, that's a great question. So I mean, that's a good place to close here, Richard. I mean, you the 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 risk of studying six different people, as Bob laid out, is that you have to become expert enough in each of them, but you can't spend a, a biography's worth of, of time and, and space. So is, is there an evolving archetype of a foreign policy person or, or not? I and mean, this gets to Derek's argument about the contrast between John Quincy Adams and Paul Wolfowitz. I mean, two people, and, and, you know, so... Do you see a trend? Do you see anything like that? I guess I probably just can't get away by saying liberal arts major and then yeah. leave it alone. <laughs> uh, work for me. I don't but um, no, I, I actually do think that that's, that is part of it. Uh, it's an, it, um, it, it would be, listen to the, the stereotype. I don't know. It would be some combination of, uh, of expertise because I don't think there's ever a substitute for expertise, generally. Uh, but also a set of, of and it, it just sounds like such a cliche, critical thinking skills, the ability um, to be able to evaluate different situations and environments on their own terms and recognize that the, the resolution or the solution is, is, is going to be ambiguous um, and to be able to tolerate ambiguity which sort of used to be, and, 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 uh, and go from there, that we, we live in an imperfect world. We face these types of intractable dilemmas, uh, and it is incumbent upon us to recognize that and address them as such. That's certainly not, uh, as I say, sort of specific enough, but that's what I would hope that those charged with uh, both foreign affairs but also generally our national security would, would reflect those attributes to, to a greater or lesser extent, and I would hope greater. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to all of you. Please join me in uh, thanking our panelists. Um, <clears throat> I do have just one request. If you would please just stay seated for one moment. Richard is going to go upstairs. If you would like to ask him a question, you can do that as he's signing the book that you bought. So, so, so let, please just stay in your seats for a minute and let Richard get upstairs so he can sit down. And then join us upstairs for lunch in the Winter Garden. Thank you very much.